Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to TLS Voices. I'm Michael Keynes and in this episode of TLS Voices I'm going to be talking to two distinguished authors whose latest novels have been shortlisted for this year's Southbank Sky Arts Awards. Uh, joining me in the studio is Tessa Hadley, the author of novels such as Accidents in the Home, The Master Bedroom, Clever Girl and now The Past. And on the line we have Sarah Hall, the author of novels including Horsewater, The Electric Michelangelo, How to Paint a Dead Man and The Wolf Border. Welcome to you both and thank you very much for joining us. I wonder if I can begin by asking both of you to say something about these shortlisted novels and the the roots, as it were, about how they fit in with your earlier work and perhaps about their deeper points of origin. Uh, Tessa, if I can put this question to you first. The Past is a novel about four 40-something siblings on a summer holiday, possibly for the, for the last time, returning to the family home, a former rectory in the country. And, and it's described at one point as a simple white house with its arched window, the surging pillar-like trunks of the great beech trees, with their canopies of sombre bronze green, the dancing silver birch, the old church sunk in its graveyard, the white doves in the stone dovecot belonging to a barn conversion opposite. But I suppose what I'm omitting from this beautiful piece of writing is that they belong to one of the siblings, uh, Roland, but only as he imagines seeing this familiar place through the eyes of his partner. And I wonder if for you this this novel, The Past, has much in common with, say, your, your previous novel, clever girl not only in terms of the story but but the storytelling the way the past is is grasped and understood and and turned around it's not a straightforward process I mean it felt very different in the putting together from clever girl one clever girl was the only novel I've written in the first person so that was an act of sustained lengthy impersonation whereas what I allowed myself in the past was a, a different luxury if you like they're both delicious to do, if, if you can do them, uh, which was to move around a lot between a whole cast of characters. So what I've done is refracted that vision of Englishness, which I, just at the end of the bit you read, it has a little bit of irony in it because actually the dovecot is in a barn conversion, <laughs> not a barn. That's not old England, that's new England, if you like. So I've got that image and that nostalgia and that longing and that love for something really beautiful, playing around between all these different characters and perceived by all of them and needed and wanted and dreaded by all of them differently. That's as you should say that. I mean, you get the, right from the beginning of the novel the sense you can't quite 
access the past, maybe, because the first mm. thing that happens is that we're, we're locked out of the house. Yeah, that's right. Yes, she's forgotten her <laughs> she's key. Forgotten her key. Yes. And I also wondered about this this novel. I think you, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you said that the structure, which I know is being compared to um, the house in Paris, mm. you know, in, in starting in the present, the past, going back mm. to the present, that, didn't, that wasn't how you planned to write it? Is that that no, one? that's right. I, after Clever Girl, which was all in this one voice through 50 years, more or less, of a woman's life, I wanted to do something minute. I I wanted to take an immense amount of time with each hour, with each day. So I planned to write a novel that was entirely about three weeks in the country, just as an opposite energy, if you like, to the, 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 the long energy of 50 years. I was about halfway through when I had one of those weeks that happen when you're writing a novel where everything, suddenly you panic, you feel something about the structure, the dynamic, the energy of it is is going wrong. It needs another tent peg in or something like that. And and I had a, a bad week not knowing what to do with it and feeling dissatisfied with the single stretched line of the book. And then in the bath one evening... I had an inspiration and I saw that it was obvious that what I had to do was to somewhere, not quite in the middle, drop back about 35 years, I think it is, to where those same people in their 40s, in the majority of the book, are actually children. In fact, one of them isn't even born and there's a little mystery attaching to that. And and we go back to when their mother, who presides over the present of the book, although she's dead... Her absence is is potent, and I had meant it to remain only an absence. And then suddenly she was just too good not to do, and in a way she's the most <laughs> potent character in the book, I think. Right, yes. I, was, I, that, I mean, that's literally that master... I mean, literally a unique, eureka moment. Yeah. Sarah, is this, is this a familiar feeling to you? Do books suddenly take a new shape when you're in the process of writing them? They do. I always love listening to Tessa talk about work because there's such a clarity that she sort of brings to the whole procedure, which I often find quite murky. But she's absolutely right that, you know, although novels in particular are these huge, sometimes planned, oftentimes unwieldy things, there are these great moments that can occur to you that really will turn the direction of the book. Um, and I've, I've certainly had that in the past. And I think they're absolutely to be kind of embraced and cherished those moments because they can really take you into territory that's good for the particular project that you're working with. And they're always preceded, by the way, Sarah, by by weeks of murkiness. Exactly <laughs> that word you describe, horrible <laughs> weeks of murkiness that one wants to forget afterwards. Uh, there's, yeah. a, there's a warning for all potential novelists, the weeks of murkiness you need to get through to reach that <laughs> special moment. Um, Sarah, can I also ask you about when about the uh, wolf border? Um, in contrast to this idea that things sneak up on you, all of a sudden, it seems to me that this work has, has been sort of sneaking up on you for quite some time, in that it's a novel partly about the reintroduction to wolves in the British Isles and specifically to a Cumbrian estate, as, as the title suggests, an estate near, near the Scottish border at the time of, of the referendum. But it's also about uh, Rachel, the main character, and her brother. So it's not entirely unlike the emphasis on, on sibling relations in, in Tessa's novel. And it's also about Rachel's baby, obviously, and, and the uncer- mm. uncertain way through life. And when, when I say it's sticking up on you slowly, I mean that there are wolves in, in some of your other works just, just on the borders, aren't there? Just um, <laughs> the beautiful indifference. And I, I think they mentioned, I, I was going to say how to paint a dead man. I, I might be wrong. You tell me if I'm completely there wrong are, about that. There are wolves on the borders, you're right. There are. Of, you know, which is often a, the only way that you see a wolf if in silhouette a long way away. They're very good at not being seen. But Right. And I, I've been interested in wolves for a long time. It was something of a childhood fixation. So when Rachel... Um, 
uh, the main character first encounters the wolves as a child in an enclosure in her home valley. That's very much based on on the Lowther Wildlife Park, uh, which was very close to my home when I was growing up. And there was a wolf enclosure there, which just seemed terribly exotic. You know, these creatures were absolutely amazing to look at as a child and they were fairly habituated so they would they were quite inquisitive and would come up and look at the kids and even run with them up and down inside the enclosure if you ran up and down outside the enclosure and the whole thing was brilliant as a child and of course they just seemed terribly fitting with the environment even though they were no longer a wild creature in britain there was a sense even then that they looked they looked as if they should be they suited they physically suited their habitat which of course they do wolves are fantastic they suit most habitats that they find themselves in, they're very adaptable. And of course, you know, modern Cumbria, the modern countryside and the debates around what we do with our wild spaces and who owns them and uh, how we sort of bring in scientific and environmental and ecological knowledge into our management is also important. And I've been working on that in my novels for quite some time. And then there was this very kind of modern political sense, you know, there was such terrible excitement in the build up to the referendum and everything was sort of reaching fever pitch in terms of political interest and reinvigoration and, and the debate about what Britain is and what it could be and, uh, and whether the right thing is to split. Of course, we're seeing that debate going on in a different way now in the build up to the EU referendum. I just felt that this was too important and a period of political interest to sort of go unpassed. And I wanted to include it in the writing of this particular book, because, of course, if you're thinking about borders, physical, emotional, political, then really you, you couldn't ignore the fact that Scotland may have voted yes. And, and that would have that would have given Britain an entirely new shape. Not physically, but, you know, politically. Actually, that's one aspect of the novel I, I, I've enjoyed so much. You at the um, Rachel meeting the sort of not only the local grandee, not only Thomas Pennington, but also the sort of young is it Tory politician mm. who comes in and, and just the sense that she she's observing this world. She's not really a part of that world. But she's also become, in a way, alienated from her from her from her native land as well, because she's been away for so long. That is the interesting thing about living abroad, which I've done as well. You know, you, you come back, you can see Britain from afar and then you come back and, and different things make themselves known to you. That's always handy for writing novels as well, is to get some distance between yourself and the subject and then come back up close to it and have a level of intimacy there. But um, particularly when you're thinking about Britain and the components of Britain, uh, there are these power structures which stretch back hundreds of years. I mean, Tess is very good on this as well, the sense of history and what it means and how power still affects people, whether that's within a family unit, a domestic scene, or in a greater political sense. It's quite fun, actually, to write, write about modern politics and to invent politicians and, you know, invent a Scottish prime minister and, and let them loose on the page. It's, it's very, very liberating. And we, you, you mustn't forget that as a novelist, you can have tremendous fun doing such things. So deliciously irresponsible compared to being the <laughs> prime minister of Scotland in life. <laughs> That's what I love about writing. It's also nice to know it, it, li- it lies in being able to write about these these great events, but also in, in details like a, a barn conversion, which I think we mentioned earlier. I think if I, I wonder if I can ask you both as well about about the, the critical terms in which these, these books are, are received. Tessa, I noticed that reviewers have reached on more than one occasion for the word Chekhovian to describe the sisters in, in the past. I liked you to George Eliot, which is a, quite a nice compliment, I think. But you, you've spoken in the past about, um, I think you used to phrase the quiet women writers who were who were writing on the assumption that realism i think is a valid form even in the age of sort of joyce and beckett mm. and I, I wonder when 
when you read the reviews or when you hear about yourself, um, uh, you know, you, you were talking when you invoked quiet women writers, you were talking about Jean Rhys and you were talking about Catherine Mansfield and Elizabeth Bowen. I mean, are these in a way roots you, you are there some you care to acknowledge more than others? Uh, well, all of those people are wonderful. One knows one has a direct debt to certain writers, just so direct one almost can't confess it. And Bowen is one of those for me. I literally often have her book open on the desk and when I'm feeling as if what I'm writing is a bit slack, I look at her sentences where nothing is ever wasted and, and that's inspiring. <laughs> that something did seem to happen in the early 20th century or mid-20th century where a lot of male writers went down either... In, in Lawrence's direction or, or perhaps in Joyce's direction and quiet realism. I mean, quiet is dangerous, isn't it? Because mm -hmm, it can sound sure. like actually dull mm -hmm. and the last thing Elizabeth Bowen is or, or Mansfield or Elizabeth Taylor oh, is dull. But th they, they did persevere with those conventions derived from the 19th century novel that you cross the threshold of a book and you would believe where you were, that the writer worked to make an illusion that you were inside a real world and real lives, however stylishly, with however much manner that was done. Whereas Joyce, obviously, in you know, with great brilliance, was dismantling to some extent, to some extent, that illusion. Though I often think maybe Joyce is just the, the arch realist, the kind of ultimate <laughs> realist. Ah. Anyway, yes, that's... Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's for another day. That's but, another discussion, yeah. <laughs> but a good one, I think. And, and Sarah, so again, forgive me if I'm completely wrong, wrong about this, but by contrast with Tessa, it seems to me that the critics are much less likely to invoke any other writer at all when it comes to reviewing your work. They sort of treat you as, as sui generis. Um, although you, I think you've spoken of, of the romantic inheritance of the relationship between nature and, and humanity and how that's a kind of Cumbrian connection for you. There's there's the, the dialect that you said you've heard as you grew up. And even if you didn't 
un- understand it and it's, it's now endangered, um, it's sort of stuck with you. The magic of the words has stayed with you. D- does that association g- give a reader a fair way into thinking about your work and, and its sort of wellsprings? Are, are there alternatives? Um, possibly. Uh, I think in terms of the romanticism, I would kind of reach towards the more radical interpretation of that. I, I, you know, I, I am interested in sort of landscape and, and, and the kind of radical sense of self and a radical politics that might be related to that, um, which sort of flies in the face of what we've come to think of countryside writing, which is bucolic and pastoral and boring and nothing goes on outside London. And of course, that's not true. I mean, the, you know, the kind of the modern political debates are happening everywhere. And it is particularly interesting to think about the physical landscape uh, and these spaces and, and what's done with them. But stylistically, I don't know. I think I've kind of tr- tr- travelled around different territory maybe because i started out very young and of course you're possibly emulating writers more or reaching for for the sort of poetic which will ultimately quieten itself down in your work as you as you as you teach yourself and are taught to balance narrative and description more and all the things you need to do to become a better novelist in terms of balance and finding your own dna really but i like the idea that there might be a dna there that's mine although there are writers you know now that i would uh, 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 that i I read, and it's not so much the style that I want to borrow, but they are so capable of doing their own thing that I find it inspirational. And so it makes you want to read within yourself to do your own thing even better. Those are the writers that I like. Somebody like James Salter, who is just extraordinary sentence by sentence. I can't be him. I never will. But I'm in such admiration of the ability of that writer on the page that it it makes you work harder yourself. I find myself turning more and more to this... quiet you know the quiet realism maybe we should call it lambent realism because there is something so lit from inside it it might seem Mm. that it's not spotlit but there is a light coming from it that kind of realism but that ultimately Mm. is very very transportive um and as a reader that's that's what you want that's what i like as a reader and and i sort of i'm I'm coming more in that direction i think of finding less razzle dazzle and more the kind of soul inside inside of a sentence somehow if that makes any sense yes it does, I was, that's, Jess, that's does a that lovely description right? yes, yes that's, that's absolutely it something it realism doesn't mean something sort of opaquely dully real and still mm-hmm. it means something transforming just like just yeah. as you said yes yes we're both drawn moth-like to that i think mm. <laughs> it's a wonderful description i have to remember lambent Although our excuse to have this chat is, is the shortlisting of these, these two novels for the South Bank Sky Arts Awards, I wonder if we can talk about your work as short story writers as well. Because I suspect that those who enjoy The Wolf Border in the past will find that equally great pleasures await them in the form of The Beautiful Indifference, Sarah's Collection, which I've already mentioned, and Tessa, um, Married Love, and Sunstroke and Other Stories. But there does seem to be this perennial general confusion about the form. You're told it's somehow in crisis, this old idea, or, or needs defending, just because the novel is far and away the more popular form. Yet great collections keep appearing, and some tales perhaps seem better told in brief rather, rather than at length. Um, what do you think? Would you spend more time writing short stories, Tessa, if the market wasn't so supposedly averse to them? You said you, you love the irresponsibility of short stories. Is that, is that still true? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And no, the market doesn't make any difference to, to, to that. I, I have a lovely rhythm where sometimes when I've been with the novel too long and I need to actually do that thing Sarah talked about of getting a distance on it and coming back as if to an unknown country even though it's a familiar country I go off and write a short story or or something just comes to me which is short so I know no but I I mean I I know this has been announced lots of times but I do have a feeling 
more readers are learning to like the short story for, for all kinds of reasons, something to do with podcasts. It's surprising how many people listen to, for instance, those New Yorker podcasts of mm. writers reading other writers or their own work. Actually, MA courses, which tend to gravitate to a 3,000-word length, mm -hmm. and people get good at producing shapely pieces of about that length. Uh, that's another factor. Whether that's for good or ill, it's it's real. But it's certainly a, a discipline, isn't it, to it, be able to do that? Yeah, and that helps yeah, people do it. Yeah. Sarah, Sarah is, this, is this ring a bell for you too? Yes, it's, it's interesting. And, you know, almost every time you ask to write about the short story, this idea comes up of, you know, is it not as revered in in this country as, say, in America, where it's sort of much more heavily in the curriculum and people are taught about stories and taught to love them, and 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 it is it it does seem to be a form that somehow always been as kept as a kind of I don't know what a treasure in a way that and we maybe we've lost sight of that here, and I don't know that that's necessarily true. I mean, whether or not we haven't had the lucrative outlets here or not, or whether. Mm you know, that the market's acted differently here or the courses haven't always taught it with such sort of respect and, and honour. I'm not sure. But I wonder, I mean, I think the short story often offers a different reading experience for the reader, even though they can be very innovative and fun and uh, wacky and, you know, science fiction lends itself well to the short story. There is something more adult about them. They, re they often... You know, they're, they're providing this quality of disquiet often. No sort of solvency to life. So questions might be asked that are very difficult and not answered. And you really have to come away as the reader thinking, oh, good Lord, you know, that's rattled my cage. What do I do with that reading experience? And I really like that. I wonder whether our tastes as, as readers have sort of become more juvenile <laughs> in some way. And we like the sort of fantasy, but we don't necessarily want the haunted ending. I mean, I really mean the haunted ending. I mean the one that really chills you to the bone mm. and makes you think about it long after. Um, and I wonder if we are now coming back to a more kind of adult reading sensibility. I hope we are, because they are immensely powerful pieces of writing if they're done well. Oh, that's absolutely yeah. am I allowed true. To plug, am I allowed to plug a book? Uh, yes, please do. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a co-editor of, of an anthology that's coming out later this year, uh, uh, 20 short stories on sex and death, which, of course, are the two sort of main uh -huh. drivers for short stories. Um, and what we asked of the, of the writers that we commissioned was just, you know, no, really go for it. This is the kind of no, no soft edges here. Uh, if, write about sex, write about death. They're difficult. Have a go and, and we'll see what we've got. Um, and I think that's what the short story offers. You know, it, it sort of offers a, a, a far different... Um, novels often hold your hand. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I don't think short stories do as a reader. Tessa, does this sound right It does. To you? When and you then... ask people why they are more likely to love reading a novel than a collection of short stories, it, it's, it's what Sarah's described. It's the strenuousness of reading a story. Quite literally, you read one probably in a night. You then, the following night, have to learn a whole new set of characters, mm. a new situation, a new world, a new tone perhaps um, and and sort of keeps chucking you out at the end and then you have to clamber in again whereas there is and to be fair we probably all have loved that feeling of getting back inside the novel mm. where we are at home already and you know that that's a lovely quality too they're just different experiences but but there is something 
difficult and strenuous and it does put readers off but it shouldn't because you can get addicted to it it's wonderful you can and they they really pull you out of yourself i have to say i was recuperating from major surgery once and somebody gave me tessa's collection sunstroke and it was the most distracting diverting thing that i (laughs) (laughs) it was wonderful because i was lying there high on morphine well not that high on morphine thinking ouch 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 every time i moved and and what i needed to read was was a real kind of powerful shot and yes, probably the short was exactly what you needed, like sort of little <laughs> little tugs of morphine on you in, yes, rather than exactly. a long extended novel you couldn't have hung on to. That's a lovely exactly. idea. <laughs> I want go. that on the back of my book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I want short story collections on the NHS. Of no one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, that's marvellous. Thank you. I, I would discuss one last point. I, um, as I said earlier, I think I'm obliged to. I'd like to ask you about the South Bank Sky Arts Awards themselves. Um, I'm told the awards have been going for 20 years now and I suppose it's unlike the usual round of book prizes in that there are 10 categories for the awards covering the arts as a whole so television drama and classical music and and dance but also literature I I wonder from your point of view is this potentially a very good thing in terms of perhaps bringing um, new writing to the attention of a slightly different readership I mean you both won prizes and I know Tessie you've you've judged prizes haven't you and and Sarah maybe, maybe you've done this too but most mean when we talk about book prizes are we really talking to the same audience? And you actually want something to, to maybe reach beyond that um, from time to time. Um, Tessa, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, that's a lovely idea, isn't it? That uh, a film star or somebody who's got a hit single or something will, will stumble into reading your book because you were there on the night. I, um, yeah, it, it seems to me extraordinary, slightly intimidating and glamorous and fun. <laughs> Sarah, intimidated? Yes, very intimidated, yes. Anywhere with a television camera, I'm very intimidated. But um, no, I think the, the awards are already fascinating for the reason of their being, you know, uh, uh, relating to all the arts. And if you look back over the years, who's won for what? It's things like the Angel of the North, you know, it's kind of, mm. kind of grand sculpture, mm. which everybody was, dis- oh, not everybody, but, you know, the country was split at the time, dismayed or in love with it. And, and I think it's... Um, it's great to kind of pull these different things together and think, OK, well, this was let's take the cultural temperature of this year. What was going on um, across yeah, the board? Yeah. And that's always quite fascinating. Yeah. And just symbolically, it is good. It is what, what Michael just said is so important to have literature up there, isn't it? Mm, with yeah. those other forms and and to sort of suggest that it's as important as, of course, to us it is at least as important. But but somewhere out there in public for that to be signed in, in a set of awards that happen all together. That's it's a really great idea. Yeah. That's good. I think they'll be very pleased to hear that. <laughs> the organisers of the awards, that is. Sarah Hall and Tessa Hadley, thank you very much for joining me for this episode of TLS Voices. It's been a pleasure. Been a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much, yes. And I'll just add that the South Bank Sky Arts Awards ceremony takes place on June 8th and will be broadcast on Sky Arts at 8pm. This week's TLS features, among other things, James Campbell on Henry Miller's declining reputation, Jerry Kimber on Faye Weldon's sustained achievement in fiction, Tom Fletcher on the ways in which Twitter and Facebook are changing 21st century diplomacy, and, as we approach the EU referendum, a symposium of leading literary and academic figures on the cultural implications of the UK's membership of the European Union. To find out about the TLS and to read a free selection of pieces from this week's issue, go to our website, the-tls.co.uk. 
You can read the TLS in full every week, in print or via our app, which is available on iTunes and in the Amazon App Store. The TLS. Life in every word. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.